Welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, welcome back to our most ambitious episode yet, summarizing the last half of the book of Genesis. Genesis 25 through 50, and there's a lot to cover here, but again, we're hoping that this just whets your appetite to go back and dig into these stories on your own time. There are a million rabbit trails to follow in these stories, but hopefully this will give you a flavor of what's going on here. This truly goes against our every instinct, <laughs> but <laughs> but there is so much value in a flyover of the Bible story. And so, like Stephen said, we're hoping that this just gets everyone more excited to read these stories for yourselves and dig into them. But we also want to use this podcast to point to Jesus, um, especially as we look as early in Genesis. We've already highlighted so many glimpses of Jesus as early as Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 as the curses were handed out. And even in looking at the story of Abraham and Isaac, specifically when they went to Mount Moriah and Abraham was told to sacrifice Isaac. So we've been able to see the Christ in these stories, and that will continue today as well. That's right. So we left off last week with Abraham's story and his death, and one of the last things he did was to help provide a wife for his son Isaac so that the promise could continue. Again, those promises to Abraham in Genesis 12 are so important for the rest of the Bible story. And a large part of this next part of Genesis is going to be talking about the multiplying of the people of God. And every time the people grow and multiply and there are more children born, that is God being faithful to his promises. That Abram and Sarah, who should never have been able to have kids, are not only having a kid, but now their kids are having kids and they're multiplying and growing. And all of this is laying the groundwork for God being faithful to his promises. And um, there's going to be a lot of bumps along the way, uh, a lot of unfaithfulness on the part of God's people, uh, Abraham and his family, but God is going to be faithful through all of it. So at the end of Genesis 25, uh, we have the interesting story of the birth of Jacob and Esau. Why don't we read this real quick here? Uh, Genesis 25, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel the Aramean of Paden Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Okay, so we pick up in the story of Isaac. Um, It gives us a little bit of recap about Rebekah. We read about her in chapter 24, where you might remember Abraham sent his servant to go find this wife for Isaac. And there was one stipulation that that servant uh, had to follow, and that was, don't go to the foreign lands and to the foreign nations to find a wife for my son, but you were to go back to my countrymen. And that's where eventually Isaac gets his bride, Rebecca. And we're told an interesting piece of information where it almost makes us feel like we're rereading a story we already read. And that that's Rebecca was barren. She was not able to have children. And that obviously calls to our mind what happened with Abraham and Sarai um, all the way at the beginning of this in chapter 11 and chapter 12 of Genesis. And again, all this looks like an obstacle to the promise. It's like, well, wow, God, you know, made a barren couple bear a son in their old age. Now, Isaac and Rebecca are not as old as Abraham and Sarah were. But again, another barren womb. 
And yet the Lord's going to provide here again because Isaac prays for his wife. Now, there is not as much airtime as it was for Sarah's um, barrenness. It just tells us that Isaac prayed and it was fixed. Uh, the Lord was able to take care of that to no surprise because he's the creator. I will say this, though. We do know from the text that he was 40 when he married her and she was 60 when she gives birth. And so those 20 years would have been a long time praying. Yeah. And the Lord, again, we read over that like it's nothing. We just read a paragraph. <laughs> but um, this would have been a hard, hard time for Isaac and Rebecca. Um, but the Lord provides for them. And these two children are born, these twins. Yeah, that's right. And did you notice what it said in verse 23 that Yahweh or the Lord had said about these two twins? That there would be two nations in the womb. Two peoples will be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. That's going to be an important verse to see throughout the rest of the story of these two children named Jacob and Esau. And specifically, the part that the older shall serve the younger um, is a prophecy. It's looking forward to what we're going to read about later. Mm -hmm, that's right. And again, so many of these side stories in Genesis are preparing us for nations that we'll see later in the story, like Ishmael, uh, Moab, and Ammon, and now Esau, his descendants will be called the Edomites, and we'll encounter them several times as we continue the Bible story. So Jacob here uh, gets his name because he comes out second, and he's holding his brother's heel. So they name him, name him Jacob, which literally means he grabs the heel or heel grabber. <laughs> And um, what's going to be funny about his name is that this is going to kind of come to represent him being a cheater and somebody who grabs it for himself uh, instead of waiting on the Lord. And Jacob's story is going to be an interesting one. We'll talk more about him in just a minute. Um, but as far as Isaac goes, uh, we know so much less about Isaac's life than we do about Abraham's life or Jacob's life or really even Joseph's life. Isaac is just kind of a little blip in the story as far as like he doesn't get a lot of text mainly chapter 26 is what we know about what happened to him and uh, in this brief chapter um, we know well, actually even from the uh, previous end of 25 uh, chapter 25 verse 28 we know that there was favoritism going on in mm -hmm. the family uh, uh, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game but Rebecca loved Jacob yeah and this is another parallel. We've already talked about the barrenness parallel, but now we see another family problem going to the next generation. Abraham favored Isaac over Ishmael. Now Isaac, the favorite son, favors Esau over Jacob. Yes. And so going into chapter 26, we see a handing down of the promises. We learn that there's a famine in the land. Again, how familiar does that sound as we reflect back on the story of Abraham? And uh, besides the previous famine that occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. In chapter 26, verse 2, the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and will give your descendants all these lands and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac lived in Gerar. Yeah. So again, God's faithfulness is passed down from generation to generation. And in part, some of this is for the sake of Abraham, those initial promises he made. Um, Isaac has shown some faithfulness, and he's about to show some similar unfaithfulness to Abraham. But um, again, you see the main three promises that we talked about last week, even though there's a different ways to number these. Um, in verse uh, 4 or verse 3, um, he says, To you and your offspring I will give all these lands. Verse 4, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and, um, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And uh, at the end of verse 4, in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Yeah. So those and, same three core promises yeah, are passed on. Yeah, that's right. And even at the very beginning of verse 3, I will be with you and bless you. Um, mm, just yeah. the, the general blessing that God is going right. to give. So That was part of the original. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so God is faithful. He's handing these promises down just as he said he would to the descendants of Abraham. But Isaac is a man who, like his father, struggled in his faith at times. And in the very next story in chapter 26, we learn that he lies about his wife being his sister, thinking that the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca, for she is beautiful. That's chapter 26, verse 7. Hmm. 
Sounds familiar. Straight up the same mistake Abraham made. Yeah, not once, but twice Abraham made that mistake. And here Isaac is repeating the same mistake his father made. And there is an obvious application there for us parents. We need to be careful. It is not uncommon for children to mistake or uh, repeat the mistakes of their parents. And so we need to be on guard against things like that. That's right. And so it's interesting that you see the faith of Abraham passed down, but you also see, unfortunately, some of the, the mistakes that he made continuing through generations. Um, but Isaac is going to, the Lord's going to spare him out of this situation uh, as, as he repents here. And uh, we don't know a lot else about, you know, Isaac's story. Uh, th- these are kind of the, some of the main episodes. We'll see a few things uh, in the next few chapters when he is an older man um, and unable to, uh, to see or hear very well. But um, Isaac is an interesting figure in just that God is faithful to him despite like just a little bit that we see. This right. is a reminder to us that there's so much more to every one of these stories than we have recorded. We have exactly what we need in the scriptures. But God is working in Isaac's life in all these other little ways that we don't know about. Yeah, in chapter 26 and verse 13, we're told that Isaac became rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks, herds, a great household, so that the Philistines envied him. I mean, the Lord has blessed him a hundredfold, uh, it says back in verse 12. So Isaac has a lot of stuff because the Lord gave it to him. He's very blessed. That's right. And so this is going to kind of give way into talking about the story of Jacob. And how he starts out as a heel grabber, and he's going to be reformed. I think Jacob's story is a fascinating one in the book of Genesis. Again, we have a lot more detail about his life than we do about the life of Isaac. But from the beginning, we know he comes out, he's grabbing his brother's heel. Um, We also know that he's not the favorite of his father. He is the favorite of his mother. And at the end of chapter 25, uh, we skipped over this story, but we'll read this just briefly. Genesis 25, verse 29 Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Edom, by the way, means red. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So Jacob is a shrewd man, and he takes advantage of his brother's physical weakness in this moment, and honestly, his kind of his stupidity and his uh, just carnal nature. Uh, we're told later uh, about Esau in the New Testament that he was uh, not a good man, and let his uh, desires take the uh, you know get the better of him on multiple occasions. And this is one of those. He despised his birthright and sells it to Jacob. But Jacob's not innocent here either. Right. Um, he knows what he's doing. And um, he cheats his brother, in a sense, out of his birthright. And then in chapter 27, we're going to see the second episode, uh, which is a little more elaborate, what where Jacob and, and his mother, Rebecca, are in cahoots to steal the blessing from Esau as well. Yes, and I will point out another flaw in Esau that's told at the end of chapter 26 is that when he was 40 years old, he married Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, and Bezamath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. So, um, And it brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. So it looks like he's taking foreign wives, and also it's wives plural. So Esau is on a trajectory that's really going to be detrimental to him. And this looks like his mom and dad knows it, mm-hmm. um, and they're very concerned for him. But that, nonetheless, in chapter 27, as Stephen pointed out, there's the, the second competition that goes on. And this harkens back to what was said about these two people when they were born, that they would fight with one another, that they would strive to get, uh, strive against one another. Um, and so what ends up happening is Isaac calls to um, give the blessing to his son Esau. And there's a really... Um, sad, deceptive way that Jacob steals that away from Esau. Yeah, and his mom is in on it too. It kind of helps him, you know, disguise his his himself to be hairy. The word name Esau means hairy. Right. That's how he was born. Um, and so he ends up deceiving his father because his father can't see very well. And he's like, well, this, I think this is Jacob's voice, but it smells like Esau. It feels like Esau, so it must be Esau. So he gives him a blessing. And um, when Esau finds out about it, he is livid. 
and he says in verse 41, the days from mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. So Esau is ready to kill his brother, which again, this harkens back to Cain and Abel. There's lots of repetition in these stories. Um, But Jacob has to run for his life. And so the heel grabber has grabbed the heel twice now. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's stolen the, the birthright. I guess he's stolen the blessing. Yeah, I guess technically at his birth. Yeah. Um, but uh, he he is uh, not not doing so well. I mean, you think about this. This would be terrifying. Your brother says, as soon as my father's dead, I'm killing my yeah. brother. And we know Esau is a skilled hunter as well. Yes, so indeed. I, I don't think this is uh, an empty threat. Not it, the guy it, it, you it warrants hunting you. That's right. But... In similar manner in which uh, Abraham commanded his servant to get a wife for Isaac from his own kinsman, Isaac and, and Rachel, or Rebecca, excuse me, send Jacob away, not to the daughters of Canaan, but back to the land where Rebekah is from. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually he will meet the brother of his mother, Rebekah, named Laban. Yes. And that gives way to what really is a larger portion of Genesis. Yeah, it's a big chunk here. I do think it's notable. There's kind of a famous story as Jacob is running for his life that we call Jacob's Ladder. And I think it's notable to pause here and just say Jacob is not worthy at all at this point in his life of God's favor and blessing. And yet God shows up to him. He has this dream of either a stairway or a ladder reaching up to heaven and angels going up and down on it. And Jacob wakes up, and this is all in Genesis 28, verses 10 through 22. Um, and he says, Surely the Lord's in this place. I didn't know it. And he names the place Bethel, that is, the house of God. And he makes a, a promise to God and says, um, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat, clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I've set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Um, God is giving Jacob completely unmerited favor here. He's showing his grace to Jacob, even though Jacob doesn't deserve it. And Jacob is scared. And he makes kind of an initial promise to God here. He says, okay, if, if God, if you'll take care of me, you'll be my God. Yeah. And this will be your house. Um, so it's just kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and I was going to say, and while we see Jacob kind of tightening things up, getting closer with the Lord, we really see Esau running further away from the Lord. Uh, we're told that whenever Jacob and Rebekah send Isaac off, or excuse me, Isaac and Rebekah send Jacob off, um, and they point out that you're not to take a wife from the daughters of Canaan, it says in verse 8 of chapter 28, Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan displeased his father Isaac. And Esau went to Ishmael and married, besides the wives that he had already. And so Esau just seems to get further and further away from the Lord, doing what displeases his parents and God as well. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, the New Testament really never says anything nice about Esau. Um, it uses him as a bad example in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. It's also just interesting, as you read the whole book of Genesis, to see how the different people recorded here, some of them get closer to God and some of them get farther. That was kind of true for Abraham and Lot. As Lot was making some bad decisions about Sodom and Abraham was still following the Lord and getting closer to Canaan and the promises there. Um, again, you just see kind of how God's promise is going to come through those that are generally faithful to him. Now, not perfect people, certainly, um, but are people who are, are drawing near to him. So in Genesis uh, chapters 28 through 31, we're going to have Jacob uh, going to Laban, and a lot happens while he's out there. Um, and a lot of it is really, really unpleasant for Jacob. Um, he finds the wife that he wants, uh, Rachel, excuse me, Leah is the wife that he wants, uh, but then he is, oh no, excuse me, I'm already getting this mixed up. There's so many names. And, yeah. I've, I've already said the name Rachel, and we haven't even gotten to chapter 29. So, <laughs> no, I can't uh, get it right. Point, so. so he wants, he falls in love with Rachel, the right. younger. And she's the younger one. Yeah. And Laban tricks Jacob. Surprise, surprise. The cheater is cheated. And he ends up with Leah, marrying her first, but she's unloved. And then he has to work another seven years for Rachel, the one that he wanted initially. 
And then with these two wives, by the way, even though God tolerates polygamy in this book, it is never viewed in a favorable light. Yeah. And nowhere is that more true than the family of Jacob. This right. is a mess. And, and to just give you an idea of how much Jacob loved Rachel, it says he served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days mm-hmm. because of his love for her. Kind of a sweet verse, but at the same time, it's sad when you think about what ends up happening to him uh, with Leah being the one that he ends up having to marry and then working another seven years. All right. And we have another barren situation. Yep. <laughs> Leah is able to have children, but Rachel is barren. That's right. And so a third generation of barrenness here, at least partially, uh, of course, Leah is bearing children, and the names of the children are going to tell the story. Uh, Leah keeps hoping that as she has children for Jacob, that he will love her. Right. And so Reuben means, see, a son. Now my husband will love me. Simeon means heard, because God has heard my cry, and now my husband will, will, will love me. And Levi means attached, third son, and now my husband will be attached to me. But then the fourth son, Judah, there seems to be a shift where she just says, this time I will praise the Lord. And Judah means praise. Um, Leah's story is a bit of a heartbreaking one in that she wants the love of her husband. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't love her right at this point. And uh, I think she learns in some ways, the hard way, that she has to be content and praise the Lord in whatever situation that she's in. And so I, I do think that's powerful to see th- th- Judah's name and kind of his birth and the story that happens there at the end of Genesis 29. But on the other hand, although that Isaac loves Rachel so much, she's not able to have children. And it gets to the point, oh, man, I did it. Rachel loves Jacob so much and Jacob loves Rachel so much that she eventually goes to him and says, give me children or else I die. It's in chapter 30 and <laughs> verse 1. Like, Am I God? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and Jacob, he burns against her. Am I in the place of God who has withhold you from the fruit of the womb? And so what ends up happening, very in similar manner with Sarah and Hagar uh, with Abraham, Rachel ends up giving Jacob her handmaid named Bilhah to have children with. And he ends up having um, a couple of children with her as well. Dan and Naphtali. Yeah, that's right. And they, of course, have names that, that um, have meanings with them, and I'm trying to spot my eyes on them. Dan means judge, because God's judged me and has given me a son. In other words, he's helping me fight against right. my sister. And Naphtali means wrestling. Wrestling, that's right. Because she yeah. says, with mighty wrestlings, I've wrestled with yeah. my sister and have prevailed. So then Leah gets a little bit older. She can't have children anymore. And she goes, well competition's on. Jacob, I want you to take my handmaid, Zilpah. And so she gives her handmaid to him, and she ends up giving him a son named uh, Gad, which means fortunate, and then a child named um, uh, Asher. Asher, which means happy am I for women will call me happy. So she has two children with him as well. Yep. And so now you can kind of see uh, it would be six children with Leah and then her handmaid, Bilhah, and then... Uh, two more children with the handmaid of Rachel um, that he has. So what does that bring the total to? Eight? Yeah. Eight at this point. And then Leah, um, the Lord listens to the prayer of Leah again, and he opens her room again, and she has Issachar and Zebulun. Um, Issachar, because the Lord has given me my wages. Issachar sounds like wages. And Zebulun uh, sounds like the word for honor. Uh, my, my husband will honor me because I've borne him six sons. Yeah. Um, so Then she has a daughter named Dinah. That's right. There is yeah. one daughter among all of the children of Jacob uh, named Dinah that we'll hear more about later. And finally, it says in Genesis 30, verse 22, Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and says, God has taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph, which sounds like the word for taken away. Um, and uh, she says, uh, may the Lord add another son, which apparently the Hebrew also sounds like the word for may he add, which is kind yeah. of interesting. And it's just kind of a sad point when you think about it, if that really is the, the meaning that once she's had one, she's already saying, well, God, go ahead and give me another. That's not really a healthy way to live. We need to be thankful for the blessing that God gives us in the moment and in the present to be thankful for it and not all already, you know, anticipating or wanting the next thing. We need to learn to be content with what we have. Mm-hmm. So the Lord, despite all of the family mess that's going on, is blessing this family mm-hmm. through the children that they're having. Of course, these names, you'll notice, will go on to become the 12 tribes of Israel. 
um, despite the, that the, the the battle between the wives is written into the names of the kids. Um, yeah, go ahead. I'm going to just say, we got to point this out too. So Jacob now effectively has four wives and 12 children at this point. Almost um, 12. We have 11. Benjamin. No, no, no. There's, I mean, there's Dinah. So that would yeah, be. Yeah, that's true. So he's got 12 children at this point, 11 sons, one daughter. And where is he? He's still living in his father-in-law's house, or at least on his land. And he's starting to realize, man, I, I think it's about time I get out on my own. You know, I've got, I've got twelve kids. I've got four women. I need to, I need to get out on my own. But Laban has recognized that whatever, uh, wherever um, Jacob is, the Lord is causing him to prosper. Mm-hmm. And I think there's more selfish reasons for Laban wanting to keep Jacob back than letting him go. Mm-hmm. And you see a tug of war between Laban and Jacob for the next um, several verses and chapters. That's right. And again, I think what we see happening here is God is allowing Jacob to have a taste of his own medicine. And Laban cheats him. He changes his wages multiple times. But God continues to bless him, even though Laban is trying to take the flocks. And uh, he can see that, you know, Jacob is just increasing and increasing, and he's not. And yet, every time Laban tries to cheat him, God kind of turns it into a blessing. Yeah. And there's some kind of miraculous things that happen here with the multiplying of the flocks. And God is just continuing to give Jacob more and more. And so, at some point, I mean, Jacob knows Laban is not going to let him go. So, yeah. he just takes his stuff and runs. Yeah. Which, he has a lot of stuff at this point. Yeah. And so, he's fleeing. And uh, God actually appears to him uh, and tells him to go back home in this. Genesis 31, in verse 13 God says to him, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now go, now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Um, so I think that's kind of interesting that uh, he calls himself the God of Bethel uh, when he showed up to him with the latter dream. And um, he's coming back to him. Of course, Laban sees that he's left and catches up with him. He's like, why are you treating me this way? And they make a covenant. They make peace um, so that they won't uh, hurt each other in the future. Um, In the meantime, we learned that Rachel had stolen some household idols. So that's definitely a a bad note on her. Yes. So Jacob comes back and he has to face Esau. Because remember, when Jacob left, what was the situation? I mean, his brother was trying to kill him. So that's the whole reason he left. And we did learn uh, back in chapter 31 that it had been 20 years he had been gone Mm -hmm. altogether. Seven for the years with Leah, seven for Rachel, and then an additional six years just in the time he was there. That's right. And so his brother is still angry, at least he thinks, because of everything that happened. Yeah. And so Jacob is is scared to death at this point of his brother and is thinking, I mean, God's blessed me so much, but Esau's probably about to slaughter me and my family. And there's this beautiful prayer that he prays in Genesis 32, verses 9 through 12. I just want to read this just quickly. It says, And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. I think Jacob is coming back, at least in part, a changed man than the cheater that he left as. And it's been through the hardship that he faced in the house of Laban that he's really been transformed in some ways. And now he is clinging to God and recognizing his dependence on God. And it's that night before he meets Esau that a mysterious thing happens. And there is a, a man apparently of some kind who wrestles with Jacob until the breaking of the dawn. And again, is this an angel? Is it God? Is it some human form of that? I, I don't know exactly. It's kind of different in the different accounts. But this is the point at which Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Uh, which kind of means he he strives with God. And this is such an important moment in Jacob's life because he's gone from being just the heel grabber to someone who is now grappling with God and he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. Mm -hmm. Jacob has realized he can't grab it for himself, but instead he's wrestling with God to get God's favor. And so he's changed. And so his name is changed. 
And again, it's going to be interesting that Israel means like he strives with God because there's still tension between him and God, but he recognizes his need for God. And now the name Israel is going to be the name that the nation wears kind of from now on. Mm -hmm. He strives with God. And that's going to be what happens with the whole nation. Kind of their story is wrapped up in this wrestling match um, as Jacob realizes he needs God's blessing but is sometimes working against God and different things. So there's some interesting thematic things happening in the naming or the renaming of Jacob to Israel here. And so right after this event in chapter 33, Jacob lifts up his eyes and behold, Esau's coming and there's 400 men with him. And so bad news. So Jacob does something interesting here. He divides up his family into four divisions, each with the wife or handmaid that uh, he had had children with. And he kind of puts them in the order of what I would say is probably least favorite to favorite uh, with the last ones being Rachel and Joseph who are like in the very, very back. And so if the 400 men are working their way through, those would be the last two that they could get to. But as he comes closer and closer to Esau, Esau does not meet Jacob with anger, with a war or battle, but he meets him with forgiveness. To the complete shock of of Jacob and also the readers of the text. Because last we left off, Esau was bloodthirsty. He was out for Jacob. He wanted to kill him. But instead, what we see is the reconciliation of two brothers. Um, In fact, so much so that a little bit later on, when their father Isaac dies, the two of them will meet up and, and bury him together. And it's a beautiful story. Yes. So we see, despite all of the family feud that's gone on, um, a lot of peacemaking is able to happen. Thank God for that. Um, and so in these chapters, there are several, there's some other backstories and things that happen. Um, there are some really nasty things that happen with some of Jacob's children. Uh, Simeon and Levi end up killing a whole town of men who defile their sister Dinah in chapter 34. Um, later, we're going to see Reuben uh, sleeps with his father's concubine. Um, in Genesis 35 and verse 22. Mm-hmm. And this may be some of the reason that of the, the sons of Jacob, uh, the promise does not continue through Reuben or through Simeon or Levi, but will end up coming through Judah. Now Judah is going to have some terrible moments coming up as well, but I think we see a different response from Judah than we do in the other of Israel's sons in these moments. And so... Um, in, in, here at the end of Genesis 35, we have the 12th and final son of Jacob born, uh, Benjamin, and Rachel uh, dies in labor yeah. as she is giving birth, and she names him Ben-Onai, which is son of my sorrow, yeah. but his father renames him Benjamin, or Benjamin, which is the son of my right hand, or yeah. the son of my strength. Yeah, and I, I kind of understand the renaming there. Um, And what's really interesting is you might remember what we read earlier whenever she goes to Jacob and is upset that she can't have children. And she says, give me children unless I die or uh, lest I die. And children there is plural. And it's at the point that she has children too. She dies. And one of the last pictures we had of her was stealing household idols out of the out of her father's house. Rachel is really a, a tragic story. And Leah appears to be the favored wife by the end of it. She will be the one that is eventually buried in the family burial where Rachel is kind of left on the way. Uh, they bury her on their way to back to where God told them to go. That's right. I do think that the, the story of Rachel and Leah is a really interesting one. Because I think you're right that by the end, Leah is given the favored position uh, over Rachel, even though Rachel was initially the beloved one. Right. Uh, but time would fail us to take every, <laughs> every rabbit trail and look at all the details there. This leads us to the last chunk of the book of Genesis, which is either the story of Joseph, but also kind of the story of Judah. Um, Ju- Joseph certainly gets the lion's share of the text. Uh, there's a lot more that we know about his story. But Judah's story is kind of parallel and woven in to Judah's story Uh, the good and the bad. And I think we see a tremendous amount of transformation from Judah, like we've seen a transformation in the life of Jacob, uh, becoming from being a Jacob to being an Israel in his story. So Joseph is introduced in chapter 37 as being 17 years of age. He's the second second youngest of all the children of Jacob. And so 
we do learn that he's still the favorite, though. He is by far the favorite because um, his mom is the favorite wife. He's got this really cool-looking tunic that his dad had given him in verse 3. It was very colored. Uh, you might remember depictions of that. You know, the Joseph in his coat of many colors, as I remember in the, in the kids' classes growing up. And we're told in verse 4, his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers. They, they knew what was going on. And Joseph even would have, like, these dreams where, like, his brothers effectively would be bowing down to him, and even his father and mother would be bowing down to him. And he would tell his brothers these dreams, and it's kind of hard to know if he was all that innocent in telling them these dreams or not. But you can just imagine the amount of hate that they had for Joseph. But it finally gets to the point where um, Jacob actually sends out Joseph to check on his brothers who are out in the field. And as he's on his way, his brothers see him coming, and they say, well, here comes this dreamer. And they say, you know what? Let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we'll just tell Dad that a wild beast devoured him, and then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. And it is noteworthy that it's Reuben who speaks up and says, no, no, let's not take his life. Let's not shed any blood here, but let's throw him into a pit and, uh, you know, we'll just kind of throw him in there, and that'll be the end of it. But it tells us that he was wanting to rescue him out of their hands later to restore him to his father. And so Joseph gets there. They take him. They rip the tunic off of him, and they throw him down into a pit that doesn't have any water in it, and they sit down to eat. And as they look up, they see these traders coming down uh, from a bunch of Ishmaelites that are coming from Egypt, and they say, you know what, instead of killing our brother, how about we just sell him into slavery and into bondage? Judah's idea to do that. Yeah, that's right. It is Judah's idea to do that. That's noteworthy. And so they eventually sell him to the Ishmaelites. The Midianites get him, and then they bring Joseph into Egypt. And we find out later, in, uh, by the end of chapter 37, that's where Joseph will end up. That's right. And so, again, uh, you talk about family issues. Uh, things just seem to have escalated that now the brothers are, uh, oh, you know, they're ready to kill each other. The family favoritism has continued. Um, it's amazing that the Lord is able to use this family at all. And yet we see his mercy in even continuing to work with this family despite their, their, their shortcomings. Uh, he has a lot of grace on these people. There's an interesting story in Genesis 38 that is really Judah's story. And how he goes through this period of rebellion where he leaves his family, uh, marries uh, someone outside the family, and um, ends up, through his own unfaithfulness and failure to keep his own promises, having an illegitimate child um, uh, through his daughter-in-law. It's, it's really a, a crazy story. But what's interesting is to see is, is Judah's repentance at the end of this. At the end of it, in verse 26, he says, She is more righteous than I. And he recognizes his own brokenness, his own sinfulness. And I think we see a change in Judah that Reuben is kind of the leader of the brothers, being the oldest, through several moments in the story. But we're going to see that shift toward the end of this. And Judah, by the end, really becomes the leader of his brothers. And so again, we won't take the time to do it right now, but following Judah's story in all this is really important. And I think the text is cluing us in on that by saying, all right, Genesis 37, here's Joseph's introduction. Genesis 38, here's Judah's introduction. So watch these two guys as the rest of it plays out. So the camera, if you will, kind of follows Joseph next, and he ends up in slavery in Egypt. And what is striking to us as we read this is just how faithful he is, despite all the opportunities he has mm -hmm. to be selfish, to give in to temptation, uh, to just assimilate to the gods of Egypt. I mean, this was not a place that feared Yahweh, the God of Israel, uh, but they have all of these gods. Of course, you can know this just from history. And to see how Joseph chooses to do what's right kind of over and over again, even though things continually go poor for him. He's been ripped away from his family, sold into slavery. He ends up in the house of Potiphar in Genesis 39. And God blesses him because he's being faithful. He's being trustworthy. But then Potiphar's wife tries to take advantage of Joseph. Joseph resists over and over again until finally she grabs his clothes and makes it look like he tried to take advantage of her, lies about it. And so Joseph finds himself, for doing the right thing, thrown in prison as we get into chapter 40. 
Yeah, and what's really interesting, at the beginning of chapter 39, it tells us in verse 2 that the Lord was with Joseph, so he becomes a successful man. And then while he is in prison, we're told that the Lord was with Joseph. Despite the circumstance that Joseph is in, Yahweh is still with him. That's right. And that's important to remember. Despite our circumstances, despite the bad things that might happen to us and the mishaps, the Lord is still with us. Um, We can put our trust in him. And Joseph is a wonderful example of that. And it's while he's in prison that he ends up getting an opportunity to interpret a couple of dreams for two fellows that were in prison with him. And uh, these two fellows um, have two completely different outcomes um, in their dreams. Uh, One of them, it was basically telling them, you're going to live and actually get out of prison and get restored back to the favor of the king. The other guy is going to get killed. And that's exactly what ends up happening. But when Joseph interpreted the dream to the guy that's going to get out of prison, he said, I want you to remember me. I want you to tell Pharaoh about my circumstances. And so that guy gets out of prison. He goes back to working in Pharaoh's household or working with Pharaoh rather. And two years later, two years later, Pharaoh has a dream. And it's kind of hard to explain at first. Um, There's kind of two versions of it, but Basically, there are seven cows that were sleek and fat, and they graze in the marsh. And then there were seven other cows that were ugly and gaunt, it says, and they stood by the other cows on the bank. And the ugly, the ugly and gaunt cows came and ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. And Pharaoh has another dream that's very similar to it as well. And they're bringing in all these people to try and interpret this dream who really can't come up with anything. And wouldn't you know that the guy that Joseph interpreted a dream for in prison finds out that the king is having or Pharaoh is having this uh, this problem. And he goes, hey, Pharaoh, there was a guy I was in prison with that can interpret this dream. And he even does it kind of cautiously because he doesn't want to remind the time of Pharaoh that he threw this guy into prison. And Pharaoh says, well, you know what? Bring him out. Let's see what he can do. And so they bring Joseph out of prison. They clean him up. He shaves and changes his clothes, and he comes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him the dream, and Joseph is quick to say, interpretations of dreams belong to God. This is not something he's going to be able to do himself, but God will be able to explain it. And he explains to him that there are going to be seven years of really, really good harvest, that there are going to be seven years of of plenty of food, um, good plants, all that good stuff. And then after that, there's going to be seven years of famine. And so Joseph encourages Pharaoh to take the time to store up as much as he can in the first seven years so that it will tie them over in the seven years of famine. And the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all of his servants in chapter 41 and verse 37. And Pharaoh even says, can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so wise and discerning as you are. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And so Joseph goes from literally being in prison to being second in command over all of Egypt within a day. And so the Lord brings him up out of this pit that he was in. Yeah. And we may talk about this more at the end of Joseph's story, but there are so many parallels to Jesus in this story. It, the more you look, the more you see. It's just amazing. But I also want to know just God's providence in the story of Joseph is so noteworthy and so helpful for us because Joseph did not see where this was all going. He probably thought he was a dead man when his brothers took a hold of him and threw him in that pit. But the Lord preserved him and allowed him to go to Egypt. And he might think, well, now I'm, I'm never going to see my family again because I'm stuck here in Egypt. And he's in Potiphar's house, and then he's lied about, and he's thrown in jail. He's like, okay, well, I'm probably as good as dead now because I'm (laughs) in jail again. But he's faithful in the prison and rises up there, interprets the dreams, but then the guy forgets about him. He's like, okay, I'm just going to die in prison in Egypt. And yet at every turn, if Joseph hadn't been thrown in prison and met the prisoner there, would he have ever ended up in Pharaoh's house? No. If Joseph's brothers had not sold him into slavery in Egypt, would he have ended up in second command in Egypt, and now he's going to be in a position to save his whole family? Mm-hmm. And again, it's not that this is, this is a gut-wrenching, difficult time for Joseph. 
Um, he, he's 17 years old when his brothers first did all this to him, and he's 30 years old, we find out, in Genesis 41, when he comes to power, second in command to Pharaoh. And yet God is faithful. And we don't always know the ways that God is working in our life. Jo- Joseph is able to look back and see, wow, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Um, he'll say that in Genesis 50. But at this point in the story, we're just amazed at God's ability to take bad things that bad people are doing for bad purposes and use it eventually for good, even if he works over years of time. I mean, Joseph was in prison two years before the servant remembered when, you know, when Pharaoh had his dream. And so the next several chapters are going to detail uh, a story of Joseph interacting in some really interesting ways with his brothers. And sometimes it's hard to know exactly what's in Joseph's heart and what's in his mind as he kind of messes with his brothers through these next chapters because the seven years of famine hit Mm -hmm. and the whole world is having to go to Egypt. And because of God's blessing to Joseph and the dreams, Egypt is the only place that has food. That's right. And so Jacob and his family are having to travel down to Egypt and get food and Joseph recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him. Yeah, and likelihood is maybe he had Egyptian robes on, maybe oh, yeah. looked all Egyptian, and so they wouldn't have recognized him anyways. And it had been years up until this point. And it's really interesting to see what like Joseph does to his brothers. He almost plays like a cat and mouse game. I don't know if that's the right word there, but he's toying with them really to figure out what kind of men they are. It's been years since he's seen them. Last time he saw them, they, he, they sold them into slavery. So. What he does is he provides opportunities for them to sell their brothers down the river. So he starts with Simeon. He ends up getting them to leave him, and uh, they end up going back for him. And then eventually he talks them into getting Benjamin and bringing him back because maybe he's thinking, well, since I was the favorite, maybe Benjamin's the favorite. Now let's see if they sell him off too. Mm-hmm. But instead, Judah stands up for both of those brothers, all of his brothers, and is the leader. Um, he is the one that is willing to take the blame for everything and do what he can to, to make sure things go well. Um, Judah steps up in a big way here. And it's not Reuben who does so, like Stephen said, but in fact it's, it's Judah. And it's interesting that it is at the moment that Judah offers himself in place of Benjamin and says, take me, let me bear the blame. That's the moment that Joseph breaks down. Mm-hmm. And in one of the most dramatic moments in the book of Genesis, uh, he makes everyone else leave the room and says, I'm Joseph. And he weeps with his brothers. And, of course, they don't know what to say. Who knows what all was going through their mind in that moment. They probably think, now we're the ones who are goners because the guy that we sold and left left for dead is um, second in command. We are totally at his mercy. And yet we see Joseph's mercy toward his brothers. He's already forgiven them. And the reconciliation that happens. Yeah, and it's really funny, too, because uh, Joseph will send them back to get their dad, and he says, and don't argue on the way. You know, mm-hmm. all this, and I think that's the idea. All this needs to be dropped. All this needs to be forgiven. It's time to let these things go. And come live in Egypt. I'll take care of you. Um, it'll be great. And so they do go back. They they tell them about Joseph, that he's alive, and they get all their stuff together, and they come and move into the land of Egypt, specifically in the land of Goshen is where they go. That's right. And so really the last few chapters of Genesis, Genesis 46 through 50, are about Israel as a nation now um, settling. It's really Israel's family, I guess, at this point. They're not exactly a nation. But um, they settle in Egypt. And this is going to set up um, the next major movement in the Bible story, and that's Exodus through Deuteronomy. But in, in these moments, we have just seen God's faithfulness over and over and over again to Isaac, to Jacob, uh, to Joseph, and also to Judah in, in this section. Um, and at the end of uh, Joseph's life, or, or toward the end, um, when, when Isaac dies, um, his brothers say, hey, have mercy on us. Your, your, your dad said to have mercy on us. And he said, of course, um, I'll do this. And Joseph uh, weeps when they say these things. And um, Joseph says, and again, I just want to read this, Genesis 50, verses 19 and 20. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And then Joseph dies, and at the end of his life, 
he makes an interesting promise because yeah. now you think, oh, well, I guess Israel is going to live in Egypt and not in Canaan. I mean, there were those promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but maybe the plan has changed. But he says no in, in, verse, in Genesis 50, verse 24. Um, he says in verse 25, or excuse me, 24, um, And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, that is Egypt, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up yeah. my bones so from here. He effectively predicts the exodus. And right. uh, predict isn't the right word. He looked at God's word and knew this isn't where we're staying. That's right. He we're, trusted God's promises. Right. We're coming out of here. This is not where we're going to stay. That's right. And uh, there's just so many cool themes through here. And you, one of the big ones to notice, too, is just where the, the younger ends up getting the blessing. Um, you saw that starting with... Isaac, he got the blessing over Ishmael, and then you get to see it with Jacob and Esau, and then now you get to see it with Joseph or Judah and so forth. And one of the last things to point out as we kind of wrap up on Genesis is if you were to look at the story of Joseph and the 12 sons of Israel just in general, and you were to try and pick which of the sons is the Messiah going to come through, you might be tempted to say Joseph. You know, this is the focal point. He was the man of faith. But it's really interesting to see that it's actually Judah will be the one that the Messiah will ultimately come through. He will be the one that Jesus Christ will be a descendant of. And you see a redemptive story in Judah here that's really neat to see that is really prophesying and looking forward to the redemption that Jesus Christ will offer us. That's right. And again, Joseph foreshadows Jesus as well in so many ways. Uh, He's thought dead and then he's seen alive again. Um, he's punished with two others. One of them does well. The other one does not. Um, he rises to the second in command. He's at the right hand of power. Um, there are several interesting parallels to the supper that he throws for his brothers mm-hmm. before he reveals yeah. himself to them with the Last Supper. But just over and over again, you see that God, in working with this family of Abraham and his descendants, is preparing the way That's to right. bless all the families of the earth through the one who will be perfectly faithful, just unlike Abraham's family, and who will truly be a blessing to all the families on earth. Um, even though Joseph you know, provided food for lots of different nations through the wisdom God gave him, Jesus will provide forgiveness of sins for all people. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and so, Lord willing, that this obviously gives way into the book of Exodus. Now that these people are in Israel, or excuse me, in, in Egypt, what's it going to look like for them to get out and go to the land that God promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? And so, Lord willing, we'll get into the next part of the, the overview next week. Yeah. If you're enjoying what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, leave us a rating or a review. Um, we'd love to study the Bible with you uh, to do a flyover like this or more specific studies or answer questions you have. Reach out to us, 717-585-0949 or email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Or for more information or studies, check out capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.